For the kingdom is if a man, going on a journey, summoned his slaves and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. The man who had received the five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had the two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more talents, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I've made five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You've been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with the two talents also came forward, saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I've made two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You've been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward, saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you did not scatter seed, so I was afraid. And I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master replied, You wicked and lazy slave, you knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and on my return I would have received what was my own with interest. Take the talent from him. Give it to the one with the ten talents. For to all those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. And as for this worthless slave, throw him into the outer darkness. This is the word of the Lord. My junior and senior year in high school, I was a defensive captain of our football team. I played inside linebacker, and we had a very good team. We were district champions my junior year, and in a state the size of Texas, we went all the way to state quarterfinals my senior year. Uh, we played to a tie in a driving icy rain in Tyler and lost on one first down more than we had. Uh, I love defense. When I see a football game, I love 14-10, 10-7, not 49-48, not 62-59. I keep asking, where are the defenses? In many of the football games I watch, teams who've had a defense play wonderfully well for almost 60 minutes finally get ahead and put in their prevent defense. Now, the prevent defense means that they usually take out a couple of big, strong, ugly linemen, maybe a couple of really good, strong, fast linebackers, and they put in some more defensive backs, which usually prevents them from winning. The other team marches down the field, 15, 20, 18, 20 yards, and win the game. Or, as some commentators say, watch this team. They're not playing to win. They're playing not to lose. Uh, I believe this story is about two different ways of dealing with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Those who play to win and those who play not to lose. Let's take a look. Dr. Brandon Scott, in his commentaries on the parables, reminds us that most of the people who heard Jesus could not read nor write. Scholars of that first century of the common era say that in big cities like Jerusalem, 
maybe 30% could read and write, 70% could not. In the rural areas where Jesus spent most of his time, they believe that maybe 3% could read and write, 97% could neither read nor write. So, storytellers were listened to very carefully. Because one could not read later, one couldn't download from a computer if one did not remember one had committed the unpardonable sin. You had to pay close attention. So, Dr. Brandon Scott says, whenever a storyteller would begin, once upon a time there was a landowner. He entrusted his property to someone else and he went on a trip. The audience immediately goes, there's going to be a test. There will be a time of accountability. You can count on it. There will be a time when he comes back and wants an accounting of what is his. And so they anticipate. They look forward to the end of the story to see how this one's going to pan out. It's an awareness that in all of life we are called to accountability. We are called to be responsible. A couple of weeks ago, before the writers went on strike and all the late talk shows had to start doing reruns, I was watching one night when Sir Anthony Hopkins was being interviewed. He has a new movie just out called Beowulf. Uh, now, we liberal arts majors know about Beowulf. Uh, Beowulf may be the oldest written story we have from the Anglo-Saxon civilization. Uh, some say it dates back a thousand years. That the monks who could read and write in ancient England wrote down this poem. It has more than 3,000 lines, but that even before the monks wrote it down, it may well have had an oral history up to 300 more years, which means it got processed sort of like parts of the Bible, those very oldest parts of the Bible. Stories told around campfires for hundreds of years. And then, after the time of King David, a temple in Jerusalem, a better educated priesthood, stories got written down. Beowulf is not scripture, of course, but it is a very old story, probably told around campfires for two, three hundred years, and finally written down. As you recall, the people of England were afraid of those wild folks who lived across the North Sea from them. We know about Vikings, don't we? We know about uh, these marauding bands who were very good on the sea. The people of England were afraid that most any morning they might wake up and have these hordes of folks uh, standing over them with, with pick and axe. So Beowulf is supposed to go meet them at their home before they can come to ours. And the enemy depicted in this long poem is named Grindel. And Grindel, Grindel lived in Denmark. Um, he's a bad one. His mother is even worse than he is. And Beowulf is dispatched to go and deal with them. But the real heart of the story, and though it's rated PG, this new movie, I would be very careful because I don't know how they could make one G for sure out of Beowulf. He tears folks' arms out of the sockets and so on. It's a, it's a pretty gruesome tale. But it is a story about responsibility. And those who are teaching Beowulf as a young man keep saying to him, never forget 
that however strong you may be and how many victories you may win, you too will die. You too are mortal. You will die. And only then will it be accounted whether you have lived in a way that brings eternal rewards. So it's been kept for 1,300 years. It's something important. Uh, this story told by Jesus 2,000 years ago would strike in the hearts of those who first heard it a fear. Oh, no, there's going to be an accounting. Number two. Second thing is that two of the three who are chosen to take good care of the property do wonderfully well. Now, we're talking about a lot of money here. When you and I use the word talent nowadays, we usually mean some ability. We Christian folk would say God-given ability, a talent. One plays piano, one sings very well, one directs wonderfully well, one plays organ, one plays handbells, one plays football or whatever. Uh, by gift of God, it's a talent. But we need to remember that in this story, a talent is money. It's money, nothing but money. It is a description of silver ingot, okay. silver in bulk. Now, in some of the great museums of the world, we have these talents. Um, they have been preserved, dug up, found after major battles and so on through the centuries. The smallest one that I've ever read about weighs about 47 pounds of pure silver. And the biggest one I read about in all the commentaries I read weighed about 74 pounds. So that's the reason some commentators on the Bible tell you one value and some another. Did you have the 47-pound one? Did you have the 74-pound one? It's a lot of money. Let me give you an example. Uh, in great museums of the world, Gail and I have seen the little coin called denarius, the, denar the little pockets of denarii. Uh, a day laborer worked hard from sunrise to sunset for one denarius. A talent this huge ingot of silver was approximately 20 years of work by a day laborer. It's huge to those who hear Jesus. Now, the first one is given five of those. So that would be a hundred years of labor. And when he does well, he's given twice as much. He has 200 years of silver entrusted to him. The one who's given two has about 40 years labor worth of silver. And when it's doubled, he now has 80 years worth of silver. But even the one who gets only one talent, this is still roughly 20 years worth of hard work by a laborer entrusted to him. The first two do wonderfully well, really well. I was reading a story just recently about a Japanese concert pianist. Uh, his name is Zumi Tateno. Uh, Mr. Tateno was born in 1936. His mother was a, an outstanding pianist herself, and his father was a cellist. As this little boy grew up in Japan, he decided that his mother's instrument was the one for him, and he became a pianist as well. As a teenager, he was already playing concerts. Decided he wanted to move to Western Europe and chose Finland for some reason. And in Finland, playing a concert one night where a singer was featured. He fell in love with her and at the time they were married and had two children. And they've been married all these many years. Mr. Tatino has performed in concerts more than 3,000 times. 
he has produced a hundred recordings of his work. But at age 65, in the last number of a concert program one evening, his right hand quit working. He tried to continue playing, and soon his right hand was hanging limp at his side, and then he began to slide backward and fell off the bench onto the stage. He was having a stroke. Uh, Everything was done that could have been done. He made a little progress for a few months and then didn't make any more progress after that. His right hand just wouldn't function. Some said to him, well, there are great pieces of music written for left hand alone. Ravel has one of the most famous pieces in the world for left hand performance alone. He didn't want to talk about it. He didn't want to think about not being able to play again with both hands. But after more than a year had passed, one of these two children of his, a son, came home to see his mom and dad. And he brought Ravel's piece. But he not only brought Ravel's piece, he had done some research and had found that there are several pieces written for left hand only on the piano. One composed by a British composer just after World War I when one of his dear friends had had a a hand mangled in the war and could no longer play with the right hand. He found another composed for a World War II veteran who also had lost a portion of the right hand and arm and had a composition made just for him for playing with left hand. And one day, uh, Izumi came across these pieces that his son had just put on the piano, hadn't confronted his father, just laid them down there, decided to give them a try. And as he began to play again and could play as well with his left hand as he ever had played, other composers decided to compose for him a piece for left hand alone. A special bench was designed for him so that he could move more and more easily left and right using just the one hand to play. And he's doing concerts again now. There are some 30 pieces for left hand only that he's built into a repertoire and is doing really well. Um, The other night I was reading in this particular interview, right at the end of the performance, he lifted his right arm best he could uh, and started playing a very simple melody with his right hand, one that he could go very slowly, but touching each of the right notes in turn. His wife was sitting on the front row and started to cry. And he said in the interview, people say to me, you're 71 now. Why don't you just retire and go home and enjoy? And he said, because this is what I do. This is who I am. This is what I've been sent to do. So I do it the best I know how. Number three. One was playing not to lose. Dr. Brendan Scott says that the audience, in hearing this story, would have thought this fellow had done a good thing. That burying this big hunk of silver in the ground was not considered a bad thing in that day. When warring tribes might come over the dunes at any time, burying treasure in the ground might be the very safest and best thing you could do. And silver wasn't going to disintegrate there in the earth. It could be dug up again some short time later and could be reproduced. Hand it back to the one who first entrusted it to you. That he believes the original listeners would have expected this man to be commended. And when he was not, they would have been shocked about that. Uh, When this landowner gets on him, uh, they would have taken offense at that. The fellow was just trying not to lose, just trying not to lose. 
And yet, scholars dealing with this and the way Matthew has handled it, he's writing for Christians, of course. Matthew's writing for Christians, and he sees this as being much like the story he told just before this. Once upon a time, there was a man who was getting ready to get married, and there were bridesmaids invited to the wedding, but he didn't come as quickly as they thought, and they went off to sleep. When finally the shout came at midnight, they woke up, and some of them had extra oil, and half of them didn't have extra oil. Their lamps flickered out, and those who had extra oil went into the party. And Matthew is very clear about what he has in mind. You don't know the time. You don't know the place. We thought it was next week, surely next month. If not that, next year. By the time Matthew writes, it's already probably been 55 years since the death and resurrection of Jesus. We don't know the time. We don't know the place. So be sure you have vials of oil. And these vials of oil are oil are deeds of love and mercy. That you do deeds of love and mercy. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of God, but those who do the will of my Heavenly Father. This one was trying not to lose. Did not understand the joy of trying to win. Of being in an enterprise where you really believed you could win. One of my ministerial friends is Dr. Jim Jackson at Chapelwood Church in Houston. Jim was actually born in my hometown sort of a freakish thing in that his father was there for just three or four years at the First Methodist Church in Carthage. His father was a clergy also. I didn't grow up in the First Methodist Church in Carthage. That was the big town church. They had probably 700 members. I grew up at a smaller Methodist church three miles outside of town. We had about 300 members, about 75 in Sunday school and 100 in worship on Sunday mornings. I didn't know Jim back then. He's a little younger than I am. I was already out of high school uh, when, when, when his time in Carthage was there. Nonetheless, he ended up going to our School of Theology at Emory University in Atlanta, uh, served some years in Georgia, and then was asked to come and be pastor of First Methodist Lubbock, and from First Methodist Lubbock to Chapelwood, Houston, and he's done a, a really great job there. Uh, he and his wife have two sons, and one of these sons is a physician who chose to go to his father's alma mater at Emory and on through medical school there, and then was asked to teach young residents. Internal medicine is his field. And the Emory system there in Atlanta has some hospitals uh, for people who have money or good insurance, but they also have clinics and hospitals for those who do not. And Jim Jackson was writing to the folks at Chapelwood recently that this physician son of his said, Dad, I don't mean to make a gross generalization here, but I can only tell you what I've experienced. People who have money and have good insurance are complimentary about our work. They thank us for this treatment we've just administered. They thank us when they feel better. And the people whom we serve free never, ever say thank you. Not ever. And then he said, I, I've heard you say this in sermons, but I believe it's true. If you know you've been blessed, you have a different attitude from if you feel there is no blessing in your life. That, that there is no blessing. There is really nothing good happening to you. Nothing rewarding, fulfilling is coming to you. I believe it does make a difference. Notice the difference in attitude here. The first two bring back what they have. 
And their landowner, master, says, well done. Good and trustworthy, it says here, the word is often translated simply faithful. Good and faithful servant, come into the joy of your master. Notice the attitude of the third. I knew you were harsh. I knew you weren't fair. I know you take what doesn't belong to you. I know you reap where you didn't sow. Isn't that a different attitude entirely? In fact, the word here is sleros in Greek, and it means hard-fisted. I knew the kind of punch folks in the face if you didn't get what you wanted, so I buried it in the ground. Here it is. Dr. Brandon Scott says, you see, we have a choice to make. But we have to first go back to how much money had been entrusted If the common people are hearing Jesus, what did they have that had anything like the value entrusted to these people? The Torah. Matthew is writing to Christians. Jesus was talking to Jews. And the most valuable thing they had was the Torah. Those first five scrolls that tell them who God is, how God chose their grandparents, Abraham and Sarah, how God had been with them all these centuries. But this God also said to them, you can't have any but me. I insist on being the only God you have. You have to honor folks who are older among you. I will not tolerate lying, stealing, fooling around on your spouse, murdering, none of that. You will circumcise your little boys on their eighth day, and you will eat some things and other things you will not eat. Are we clear about that? And so Brendan Scott says, you see, some see this as burden. This is burden. This is heavy. And others saw this revealing of God as the most wonderful thing that had ever happened to them. Joy. We know the creator of the heavens and the earth. We know what he asks of us. We believe he will help us do what he's asked of us. Can you imagine that the God who thrusts billions of stars into the heavens cares what we eat at breakfast, lunch, and dinner? In fact, Dr. Brandon Scott has found a parable told by another rabbi long ago about a king who fell in love with a beautiful woman. He asked her to become his queen. She said she would be honored to do that. And he wrote out all the wonderful things that would happen to her once they were married. All the things that would be hers when she became queen. And then he said, but I have to go away on a trip. And he left. Many young men came her way. Good looking. Athletic. Strong. Every time she was tempted, she would take out this promise written to her by the king, read it very carefully, and send the young man on his way. And this rabbi said, when the king returned and found that in fact she had been faithful all this time, he threw his arms around her and took her home. Is he hard-fisted? Is he unfair? Or is he gracious and generous and merciful? You have a choice to make. Amen.